Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206-451-4220. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. What's good, Podcastville? You found the Bystander Podcast. Today I have creator, artist, sculptor, Craig Jacob Brown in studio. How are you doing today? I'm good. It's good to be here. Nice. It's nice to finally have you because we met back in July, on the 4th of July, at the parade, which Bainbridge Island does such a good job of mixing vendors, dancing, street food, parade, you know, it's a... It's a great time here on the island, and uh, unlike Halloween, it's not raining 4th of July, so everybody comes out to it, but uh, we haven't had time to sit down. I wanted to tell you that uh, I actually see one of your sculptures every day, because between the studio and my house and exit off the island, there is an incredible um, sculpture, carving, slash totem pole, rain bringer. Mm-hmm. Um, right on the corner. That's at the roundabout on Madison. Please check that out. That's part of your work. And, you know, usually when I walk da- my dog down towards Rotary Park, I also see a great sculpture you built. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, let's get started talking about this art. But first, you grew up in Seattle, correct? Yeah, I was and what's, Seattle boy. What part of Seattle? I was raised in Madrona. Okay. Back, back when Madrona... It's one of the first white families to move into Madrona. And what school did you go to? Madrona School. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was a it, back in that. Is Madrona like a Waldorf type school? Or? Well, that yeah, everyone on Bainbridge thinks so, and I think there's other Madronas in other. I mean, more Madrona Waldorfs in other parts of the world, but no, Madrona's a neighborhood of Seattle, kind of facing east uh, down toward Lake Washington. It's right in the central area. By East Lake Zoo? Is that where? I'm trying to picture this. No, Madrona, it's, if you just go on Union Street, head east on Union from downtown, oh, okay. you arrive in Madrona. I was between Madrona and Spring on 36th Avenue, and and oh, uh, just so a few blocks from Madrona School, which is on 32nd up there at the top of the hill. Columbia is out there. Right? The yeah. back, further than Garfield. Yeah, further, right. You, uh, Madrona's on the top of the, 30 seconds at the top of the hill, so if you go down, you can begin to see Lake Washington. You're seeing, you're looking east toward the lake. 
And uh, yeah, it, it, you know, back in the day, it has some really big, um, beautiful sort of consulate buildings that um, the, the, the old consulates used to have uh, for Seattle when it was, you know, an um, international place. Mm-hmm. And then it became kind of slum area for a while. Or, well, at least uh, the Rainier Valley and... and well, yeah, it's still Yeah, still... Tough. Yeah, still is, and um, but Garfield was notorious for not being a very uh, uh, clean environment for, especially for some of the, um, you know, the the non the non um, black community. people of color. Yeah, yeah, people of color. I, I was one of the only white kids at Madrona School mm-hmm. in my early years, um, and so art actually became a survival mechanism for me. I was. Uh, I would, you know, at first, I had always been a, I had liked to draw, a visual guy, and mm-hmm. and uh, and so people would, you know, people who knew me knew I could draw, and that was a, a claim to fame. People would say, yeah, hey, draw me a horse or something, <laughs> and I, I uh, at least made a few friends that way. But people who didn't know me. I still felt art could be uh, could at least divert their attention away from the fact that I was white and a nerd and you know not not going to look uh, you know nothing that w- anyone wanted to be friends with until I thought well I'll learn to dance and I'll learn to uh, you know sing and whistle and things like that which mm-hmm. helped uh, people realize oh okay this you know I'm not going to beat his butt as much as. This, this scared kid who runs every time I come by. <laughs> One trick pony, huh? Mm, yeah. Well, the arts allow many tricks, and yeah. I learned that. I just learned all this early, and uh, you know, I took a. It's taken a lifetime to become proficient at any one of them, but. Uh, and you're a very diversified creator. You you have multiple degrees, and you dip in education, sculpture, yeah. um, wood carving. I don't know what all your works are, are um, but I'm eager to find out. Well, we have this wonderful thing here in Washington, Evergreen State College, where um, after after being raised in Seattle, um, I realized that they will give you credit um, to 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 figure out a contract that you know what, what you really want to do, and if you you know work together with their professors. They can say, "Yeah, you do all this, and uh, we'll give you college credit." So I, I got my BA um, working. So as you say, you, um, I've been really interested. You know, kind of diversified early. I I traveled a lot and was really into culture. I just realized, wow, travel so important. People, yeah, over and, and Americans um, at least can value travel. That's the good thing, but um, yeah. it's hard to value being American until you travel. <laughs> so, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, it's a good thing those two work together sometimes, but then others who look down on travelers. Um, don't get it that I, right. when I got back from traveling, I knew Evergreen could give me credit for doing cultural work. I got my BAs in anthropology, but I got the Evergreen was willing to give me a BA in anthropology for carving wood with indigenous uh, people and doing political uh, work for Indian, um, you know, Indian law and and sovereignty issues. Um, 
during the during that uh, I guess that was early '80s. Very cool. Yeah, Evergreen. We we were there recently. It was a beautiful campus. Um, shout out to John Perdiment. That's like the most famous guy I know from Evergreen. Hmm. Um, but travel, yeah, I remember going to Tahiti and doing this ecotourism, and we were on the waterfront in the hotel. It was all beautiful, and then we went a drive a little further away from the beach, and it, it was a hellhole, you know. Hmm. And I remember there was like one McDonald's in Tahiti, hmm. and it was like a prized job to have, but a person could work there for eight hours and not afford a hamburger. Hmm from the menu at the place that they worked. Mm -hmm. And then knowing that they're on an island and they don't have the means to travel, let alone, it's just a tough survival because it's all based on tourism and there's very few jobs like that. And I look around the world and there's a lot of people that will never have the opportunity to travel in their lifetime. And once you start traveling and seeing how other cultures operate, you know, I'm, I'm really a big foodie, so, I love tasting ethnic foods and different cultural food. Um, I pretty much will try anything if it looks good and texture is okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I get, I get the piece about travel. Mm -hmm. um, what made you travel to Bainbridge Island? Well, okay, um, this is home. I, I'm, I go, I'm third generation Bainbridge. Oh, um, were so. you born? No, no. Here? Uh, so my grandparents, my whole life, lived on Bainbridge. Um, my mother and father, my mother, I have pictures of my mother when she's like three sitting on a rock at, at my parent, Bainbridge, my parents, my grandparents' house up on Sunrise. Um, mm -hmm. And my grandparents bought that together with their friends and, you know, a long time ago, in I guess whatever, the 30s, 40s. And so it's it's uh, been in the family, and I traveled. Well, that my grandparents bought it together with two other families who had a connection to Turkey. Um, one family just continued to live in Turkey and own this place on Bainbridge. Um, so the I was born in Turkey, actually. Um, so it was coming home to Seattle that uh that you know taught me english <laughs> and and allowed me to see myself as the only white guy in a in a elementary program and i was already interested in culture you know i already thought oh these people with darker skin than me are pretty darn cool they have cool ways of you know and i i particularly you liked food i it took me a while to become a foodie, so I, I, and I don't know if I even qualify, but I do qualify as someone who is, was really into the music and the puppetry and the, um, uh, the dancing and all that kind of stuff that was taking place in Turkey. Uh, oh, gotcha. And I, I, went, I was born there, we came back for elementary, and then I went back to, to uh, Turkey um, for one year, my fourth grade year, and learned a lot more and, and did fall in love and feel like I have family in, in Turkey. And then it was after high school again, um, I knew I wanted to travel. And so before I even went to Evergreen, I, um, I went to a theater school where I learned about the beautiful theater um, tradition of Bali, Indonesia. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like Tahiti 
um, has that, you know, the people who can make a lot of money through the tour industry and then the people off in the small villages, you know, up in the mountains. Struggling, yeah. Struggling. And I found um, I would prefer to be with the, the people, people that are struggling, in yeah. the mountains. Yeah, so I did uh, live up there because regardless of where you live in Bali, there's they even say it that in Indonesia there was this Majapahit um, era where one of the despots said, well, we don't want any of these philosophers and artists to be here mm. in Java anymore, and we'll banish them all to Bali. And, you know, I can just picture everyone in Bali saying, well, hey, your loss is our gain, because it, it became a very rich... Um, it's still Hindu-Buddhist, whereas the Javanese took on Islam, and um, but the Javanese preferred never to lose their Hindu-Buddhist sort of rich um, dance history, yeah. and history, and, mm. and they still tell the Ramayana and Mahabharata stories in puppets shows, and everyone on Java knows and loves that kind of stuff, even though they have this Muslim um, overlay at this point. They still, anyway, there's all these layers. It's, one of, it's a true melting pot um, or tossed salad in, in a way that, you know, Americans can really learn from those kinds of, those places. So, um, you do photography and, and film work. Um, yeah. Have you gone around to different cultures and, and film dance and such? Well, I'm working with a Balinese family right now. I have continued to return to Bali um, at least once every two, three, four years um, for decades. So I've been there seven or eight times, and I usually bring artists um, with me when I go. And um, and the last time I went was just before COVID, and we start we videotape or the videotape. There you go, video recorded a uh, a show a, a a new version of the Ramayana story, which is really big in Mali. It's one of the Hindu Buddhist sagas about Rama, but Rama's wife Sita. Um, from her perspective, it's, it's a love story between the two of them, but Sita, we, we tell it from her perspective where she's um, kind of kidnapped to a, a dungeon in Lelenka by Orahuana, and, and, and it's the saga of how Hanuman um, and his monkey army, Hanuman is the monkey general, and the, all these monkeys come to rescue her in this, from this dungeon. dungeon. And and Rama joins in that effort, um, and it's it's great. Um, we uh, we have a number of people who are involved with with this film, and we're not finished with it. I've got to go back to Bali to to complete this film, but it but it is a uh, we have the demons of Lelenka represented by plastic garbage, plastic debris which is, of course, a, a world problem, but really big problem on Bali. Um, so those are the demons. Why is and it more it, of a problem on Bali than elsewhere? Because people, they don't, you know, it's taken them a while to get the infrastructure to say, oh, when you have, you remember the give a hoot, don't pollute thing? Yeah. They, they're just having their campaign of don't pollute. You know, they, um, they for years, just threw little plastic bags everywhere and, and uh, by the side of many roads. You can still see these big piles of plastic bags. In fact, one of the scenes is our Hanuman 
who is a wonderful dancer and uh, sort of jujitsu um, mover. And he is in a big pile of plastic, waving and acting, you know, doing a martial arts sort of I, dance. And all this plastic is flying around. Well, it's more like f- fight because it is a battle scene. Ah, I see. And, uh, and it's, you know, he's fighting the demons. Who are the plastic bags <laughs> and and other plastics? So that give a hoot, don't pollute. That owl mm-hmm. did he double dip and be the Tootsie Roll owl too? <laughs> you know what? Gosh, I, I think he had too much integrity to to go for Tootsie Rolls. Tootsie Roll is just another form of plastic that you digest, isn't it? That's food for thought. <laughs> or not food for thought. <laughs> it's, it may, I don't know. It's, at least it's putting it in the sewage system. It's not putting it out on the street, which is what... That's what our owl, give a hoot, didn't want us to do. Let's, let's get off sub- subject for a second and <laughs> talk a little bit about how you see recycling here on the island. They, we have a program like Zero Waste. Mm. I'm and, working for them right now. So you're a zero waster. Uh-huh. We have the Bainbridge Island Disposal Company that does um, food scraps, lawn scraps, um, regular recyclables, or commingled recyclables, yeah. and uh, garbage. And then we have an organization that is taking it a step further. Uh, orange, you got little milk boxes on the porch. Mm. What is that? So I don't know hardly anything about it all. but I forget uh, that organization. I don't know why it's not coming to my mind. Somebody will have to remind me. Is it Buy Nothing? There's the other big No, that's another great cool thing, yeah. thing in Rotary um, yeah. because I prefer reuse versus recycle. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you know, Upscale. There's a lot of, yeah. Repurpose. A, repurpose. There's a lot of, you know, chemicals going into the air when they make those polymers a second time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ridge, Ridgewell, I think it is. Okay. And they take the plastic film, you know, like if you were to take a TV dinner and take the plastic film off, mm. they recycle that stuff. Okay. But it's a whole process of washing the film and then putting it on clotheslines and drying it and then putting it in a bucket I do and then that. paying somebody 45 bucks a month to pick it up. <laughs> My question to you is, is, is recycling really working because... I still see more and more plastic water companies coming out, you know, mm-hmm. and the the packaging department becomes cheaper and cheaper, mm-hmm. and there's less and less companies participating, you know, so yeah. there's BlackRock that owns everything, and they want to make the most profit, so they're going to continue to make plastic. And then we have a recycling disposal company that... I don't know if they've educated the people of the island enough, but, you know, you can't have lids on your bottles and that recycling stuff. Mm-hmm. Everything has to be cleaned out and then dried as well mm-hmm. because when it goes through the processing plant, if it's wet or dirty, they don't have the means to clean that and recycle that stuff. Yeah. So that just goes into the garbage, yeah. even though we've taken the time to separate it into the blue bin. And this is where I kind of think recycling is a little bit of bullshit you know, we need to use, go back to glass jars and, and reusable things like aluminum mm-hmm. as opposed to all these plastics. And you know, when I buy a, a bottle of water, I usually get Voss because it's a glass mm-hmm. and I can reuse that glass over mm-hmm. and over and over. It does have a plastic lid on it. 
-hmm. doesn't have like a cork. Yeah. So I feel like sometimes do all this work and I clean my recyclables in mm -hmm. the sink. Mm -hmm. Then they just get tossed in yeah. the mix in a big old truck where everybody else has not taken that time. Then it gets driven oh. off the island mm -hmm. way far away and it creates more climate yeah. damage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so where's our real uh, solution to making headway when it comes to reducing, recycling, and reusing here on the island because we have so many people trying, but I don't think the final part of it is getting accomplished. So, uh, you know, we're, we have uh, a paradigm shift taking place right now because uh, un, un, underneath it all, that the big businesses have said, well, it's on you all to recycle this stuff. We're going to package it however we want, and we're going to do things the way... And we see that little triangle on, on the things that say recycle. But that's still... But that's, that's garbage, too. Well, it's still, it's still passing the buck along. Yeah, and it makes so, us feel good about it, because there's a triangle on this product. Well, we feel good if we're aware human beings, but there's a lot of people who don't care about the triangles and, um, and don't care about the whole idea of recycling and don't really care about garbage anyway, because it's out of sight, out of mind. And then you, but, we put food in the garbage, and that's probably one of the worst things to put in the garbage yeah, you know? yeah. start but, a worm farm like I did yeah that, that's my advice to you today well and, but <laughs> but I'm gonna say we're lucky we we have Christine Walt Rolfus here we are in this beautiful part of the world and she is championing a new bill which is which we all are gonna have to um well she just retired support. no um she's gonna I think this is her last um term term at least she can she did sponsor this final one which is going to eliminate a whole bunch of waste or it's going to follow it's going to put the buck put the um onus on the businesses to first of all get rid of the clamshells that we have yeah but but second of all have um sort of a, a a direction what needs to take place with each one of the pieces of garbage we have um more written out more clear and the onus is on the businesses to to get it done. So we're, you know, we, um, I, I like to, uh, with one of the spiritual communities I'm involved with, I do lobbying um, and have had discussions with our representatives about all of this. And this is an important um, thing that's going to go through to Washington. I mean, to our um, legislators this this session, and hopefully we'll be able to. Not say this isn't about us recycling. I mean, we'll reduce the need for recycling mm -hmm. tremendously if we just make it on an industrial scale. Now it's going to be those businesses. Obesity is a huge problem. Order the food that you will eat at the restaurant. Don't take a muffin and something half eaten in a clamshell back home. You know, just that's one way of stopping the clamshells. Yeah, right. I didn't mean to get too far into that, but. <laughs> I want to talk about what you do more than anything. Okay. Well, I do lobby, so hey, yeah, it counts. Right on, right on. Citizen lobby. Um, you have a maskery thing yeah. that you do, and and is, are those all wood masks? Are they native yeah. masks? Are they theater masks? Yeah, theater. And what do you use those masks for in theater? Well, so yeah, uh, after um, living, I, okay, so I did move to Bainbridge when I was in high school, um, but I, I finished my high school career in Seattle, commuting from 
from Bainbridge. Okay, let me pause it again, because I'm always interested in hearing people's past experiences in the Bainbridge High School I never went to Bainbridge High School. No? (laughs) No. Options or... Uh, no, I, I went to Lakeside School in Seattle, and oh, yeah. so it was pretty easy for me to complete that education. But I, but there was a little carpool of us back in you know '79 that would, that I would commute to to all the way to Seattle with. Yeah, this some group people, of people go to Holy Names and O'Day and commute. Yeah, yeah, as high schoolers. And yeah, we did. Running so. Start and Olympic College. You know, there's, a, yeah, I'm surprised because. You know, let's let's face it. Not every school was fit for every kid. No, no. And at the time, Lakeside really supported my art habit. I I was able to do theater and visual arts and um, music. I I just was those things that were survival mechanisms mm-hmm. continue to be survival mechanisms because I didn't get along necessarily with everybody. But people could at least respect the fact. Oh yeah, well he he sings well with that barbershop quartets and you know, <laughs> or whatever I would do. So. Um, and but fun fact, first lakeside was on the island, correct? And didn't it just get tore down like two years ago by the uh, messenger house? Um, I think that would be a different lakeside. I think the first lakeside um, that uh, uh, that is still alive today was in Denny Blaine area. Um, and then mm. so I think it, it's like the lake that it was referring to was Lake Washington. All right, originally. I'm gonna have to fact check that. It's not time. by any lake anymore. It's at 145th up there. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I, but it's a very well-known school, and it's much better known for its academics. So I got some good academic stuff too. I mean, you know, some of my college experience that would be more conventional kind of was a lakeside high school thing, um, and then my less conventional Evergreen that saved my life too because I could put my program together. But before I went on to to Evergreen, I went to a theater school which taught that my theater training was through mask. Um, and, and European style masks, which were Commedia dell'arte and the Swiss carnival tradition. Um, and, and these, this I know is, the Brazilian carnival and, uh, it's big in Europe too. And New Orleans, they have a lot of masks, yeah, down totally. there, but it's a little different than what I've seen that you've produced. Yeah, well, um, so mask theater, every culture on earth probably has some kind of mask or puppet type culture. Well, theater, mm-hmm. you know, the, the universal logo for theater is two masks, right? There, there you go. There you go. It's kind of, you know, even if you don't put on a physical mask, you're kind of masking. You are hiding your true self and putting out some other piece of, of some other, actually, even psychology, uh, you know, the from what I know, my father was a psychiatrist, so I know a little bit about um, psychoanalysis. And yes, deep in our brains, we have many different characters or different um, intentions, and those can talk to one another. And it's kind of like a theater piece going on in your brain uh, with the dialogue. And so, well, that's, I don't know enough, so I can't speak uh, too much about that. But the similarity is the style of theater that I learned um, came from a guy named Jacques Lecoq, and um, he says that if you first get in touch with your essence, which he calls a neutral mask, there, and, and a lot of theater programs use this idea that you start with a neutral mask. If you can achieve neutrality, then you can add on intentions and movements and pace and, and uh, you know, emotion, all the different kinds of things that you might uh, that any give, given 
uh, two-dimensional, three-dimensional, eight-dimensional character would have. But the, down below it all is the essence, just the sheer humanity that we all share. And, um, and that has its own pace, its own stance, its own um, intention, which is no intention. Um, and, and so all of that is something that I, I, I still aspire to achieve, never have, but that's one of the things I help my students with. And then um, we add character, we add intention, and each mask represents a, a myriad of intentions. And, and so this is a European approach, and that was the beginning of my training. But it was at that theater school that, that I learned about these different styles. Well, if I go to Bali, I can also learn about masks. I can take my essence, my neutral, and I can add in these sensibilities that are uniquely Balinese. And they have it in Fiji, they have it in Thailand, they have it in Africa and, and Central America, as you say. Yeah, very cool. I'm just starting to think of all the mask sightings I've had. I'm watching a series called Culprits, and there's a, like an ex-executioner that has a white expressionless mask. And then one of my favorite series of all time is Casa de Papal, hmm. about these um, bank robbers. And they wore the anonymous mask mm. with no expression. The, the, what's his name, Fox, um, the anonymous, the Guy Fox, it became, a, that Guy Fox mask became very popular. In, uh, in, yeah. Is that the one? Those yes. big smile. With, yeah. the, with the mustache? Yeah. Like Salvador Dali almost? Yeah, that comes from England. Yeah, and then uh, the Jabberwockies mm -hmm. wear that same white mask that the, the killer in the other show wear. And Jabberwockies are a hip-hop dance group, uh -huh. and they're expressionless. And they bring the expression through their dance, but they, they hide their faces behind these masks. And they also can hold the mask physically with their hand, move their body, and not be seen. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's pr pretty incredible that they incorporate that. Because I know, it, <laughs> you know, I've gone on indigenous uh, trips like Woodby Island, and they have the big dancing. You know, mm -hmm. you go on the cruise ship or whatever, get some salmon, and mm -hmm. feed you clam nectar on the beach, and all that good stuff. And then they have tribal dance, and you see the masks in in native uh, shops and uh, museums and such like that. And you see it represented on the Washington State ferries too. Yeah, um, it might be down to one boat if you're listening to this now, or it might be up to two. Might not be working, and it might be on a sand barge. <laughs> <laughs> a little public service and they'll say, yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> crazy. It's got to get better. But well, I'll tell you, I, I, um, it was, I am, as I say, local guy, you know, and I do remember my grandfather taking me across the bridge, the Agapas bridge when I was a small child and saying, we're, we're going into a new nation now. And I went, wow, where, what, what, what nation is this? And he says, Suquamish. Yeah. So I, early became interested in the culture of our neighbors, of the, the original culture here. Have you studied world religion? Because you sure. seem to know a little bit about everything, and I was wondering if that's just osmosis through events in your life, or you sat down in the class and learned some as well. <laughs> I, I'm a mystic. The Quaker tradition I was raised with um, is, and I think I told you just ahead, that I, I was raised Quaker. Um, and many West Coast Quakers 
uh, are proud of and deeply ensconced in our mystical tradition, the Quaker mystical tradition, which allows one to have a, a kind of personal relationship with that of God in, your, in yourself and all other people and all other living beings and, and non-living beings. There is that of the spirit. So I sought out mystical um, wisdom wherever I went. And there are, most, most religious traditions have a mystical component. So I did study um, be, just because it was easy for me to tell people, yeah, I'm like you. I don't know what <laughs> is going on either, but I know it's there and it mm -hmm. imbues my body, soul, and mind every day. So, If you want to hear some mystical chanting, uh, please check out a previous podcast that I did with Lee Shin, The Mystical Voice. Mm -hmm. uh, very beautiful. Hmm. Uh, so, and now you're Jewish, not a Quaker, or are you Quaker-Jewish? Jewish I was Quaker. raised Quaker, and then uh, my first wife was a Jew, and I w I, we raised our family Jewish. And, and after both of my kids had a bar mitzvah, um, I said, I want one of these. So at age 49, I had a bar mitzvah, and... I call myself Jewish, at least my community does, but I would say, again, it's, it's cultural and, and it's mystical. I mean, it's I'm a cultural Jew because I know all the holidays and, and songs and dances and stuff, um, and I kind of learned all that even before I was Jewish, but I also really am deeply um, inspired by the Kabbalistic um, tradition, which is a, a Jewish mysticism. And it's just way more, there's so many stories and so, uh, such a rich, mystical, Jewish, um, you know, uh, what do you call it, canon, you, you know, there's so many stories you can dive into and each one has great allegorical um, meaning for human existence, so. Well, let's, let's get off arts and humanity for a moment and talk about current day, what it's like to be Jewish. Uh, it seems like in all parts of the world, like it's just been re really ramped up, Jewish hate. Mm. And then we have Israel and Hamas going at it. What's kind of your viewpoint of why this renewed criticism of uh, Jewish people and the fighting, you know, God, I can't even say yeah. what I'm trying to say, but yeah. hopefully you, you're picking I, up on what yeah. I'm laying down here about Israel and Hamas. I, I, I think it <clears throat> very much boils down to our current political system on earth right now um, balances between oligarchic um, uh, people who, who just want to take power and, and keep it. Um, and I think Netanyahu is one of them. He uh, was probably a lot more like the people, um, the Hamas leadership, than he is uh, like many of the other Israelis in Israel. Um, he, he, they want power too, and and it's a it's a good thing if they keep that tension with one another because they can continue to build arms and solidify power and, and uh, give, uh, spread fear amongst their people. Um, and I think Hamas has not done a very good job with its leadership of Gaza. And I think 
um, by the same token. Netanyahu is, uh, has been indicted already and is what he's doing now in Gaza is criminal. You, you can't. I mean, it's a, a war crime to treat innocent people. Now, what about Putin in Ukraine and, you know, the, the claim of Nazi, Another Nazis and Jews? You know. Oh, yeah. There's no such thing as a, uh, as a Ukrainian Nazi. Um, that's, it, he thinks he, it's, it plays into his spiel and, and uh, the, the face that he wants to promote to say, these are Nazis. I need to get rid of them. And um, it's just uh, it's a power grab. And... Russia is way bigger than Ukraine, and so it can afford to just continue to slow to do, play the war. Yeah, yeah, it's very sad, and 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 you know we in America we've learned this lesson many times that this is what our president and and particularly an ill um, begotten president is going to say. Well, the only way I'm going to consolidate power is to start another war, or you know deflect everybody's uh, attention away from the poor policies that I have by starting another war. Why is ego and, and power such a driver in certain people? These poor souls, they're not, ugly. They're not getting into politics for good reasons. They don't want to help. They, they want power and money. It's money. I wonder if it's an addiction, just like gambling or smoking. Well, yeah, you know, you we have... addicted to power. Um, yeah, okay, so yeah, we could look at the dopamine, what's going on in each, mm. in each human being, because I think we all are uh, dopamine addicts to some degree. Thank goodness. 100%. Some, yeah, some of us do it through food or some, yeah, or <laughs> some take, of, take it through an ice bath. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways. So, so, so some people have to do it, you know, some of those politicians. Yeah, I remember being a little kid shoplifting and having such a dopamine rush, you know, yeah. and the way it made me feel yeah. getting away with it. But I'll tell you one of the best way, the best do- dopamine rush, and I think everyone could do this, it's ice bath. is to help other people. Oh, when you, you think so? Oh, yeah. Being generous? Oh, yeah. it's Because it, it, you can feel it in your body almost immediately when someone is smiling at you when you give them something. Um, yeah, when you get that uh, acceptance of generosity. Yeah. Because uh, there's sometimes there's people that you know, nah, I don't need that. Give it to somebody else or whatever. But it also affects the person that's trying to give it to you because in their mind, they want that dopamine of, I feel good yeah. passing this on to you. Yeah. Right? And, and actually the struggle of whether someone will accept your gift, that's not a bad thing because when you have chosen the right thing to give to the right people and it's someone who not only really deserves or really needs something that's someone who, who who's going to really make your dopamine go because because seeing them smile you know how long it's been since they've had something that you're giving or how how big a change it's going to make in their next hour or day or year so if that's something you're doing um that's a dopamine rush like i can't believe and if you're looking for that, you can support the show on Patreon.com. <laughs> and you can support my GoFundMe, too. We'll talk about that. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about the Peace Pagoda. That's where my GoFundMe is. And you're doing that in a Buddhist temple. So there yeah, we go, so, another religion to add in. Okay, yeah. And as I said, I, I cut some of my teeth, which is... Cutting teeth is something that happens in Bali. You, you, you literally file your teeth down. You know, this is a way mm-hmm. of, 
Um, no, I don't. The whole <laughs> idea of cutting teeth. Is, okay, so I'm going to go back into what that is. They fought, um, you know, What's humans. What's the purpose of hum- filing your teeth down? Humans naturally have sharp um, incisors uh, to, the, to the left and right of their, you know. Front teeth. Their front yeah, what are the front ones? Anyway. Fangs. Yeah, before you come to molars, you get these sharp ones. And um, in some societies, Bali being one of them, uh, it's, it's just a little uncouth to have sharp teeth. It's, you're more like It's a vanity man. thing. Yeah, it's a vanity. You, you want to become tame. You want to take that childlike um, vigor and stuff and become a little more um, uh, established. So they, there's a tooth filing ceremony in Bali, and I cut my teeth. Okay, I never had my teeth filed, <laughs> but I cut my teeth in Bali becoming a, um, uh, a spiritual artist, a, a, someone who is motivated by the spirit to create art. And um, that's what Balinese do. They, all of their art is for the gods, basically, um, and they're Hindu-Buddhist. And so the Hindu is the section, the part of Balinese ceremony and art and ritual and life um, that has many gods um, and so those of you who know about Hinduism there's you know Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva all of them uh, and, then all, and then there's more gods of other things and that kind of harkens back to the animistic tradition which is also another mystic idea that there is gods in you know there's the gods of a plants and the gods of the sun and things like that. So the cow, yeah. yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, so all, a lot of traditions go back to this that spiritual idea of gods everywhere. Well, Buddhists come out of the Hindu tr- tradition, and in Bali, they never decided, oh, you have to be one or the other. It's just kind of uh, as as Jesus would have said about the Jewish tradition. He said, "I come to fulfill." the the book not you know not rebel against it and buddha would be similar for hinduism he came to fulfill and and indeed represents not looking for gods but looking for that that essence and and finding it in yourself so that you are you become more part of everything around you and if you become more part of everything around you and um you, you don't have to look for some um, disembodied god or some some force somewhere. You don't even have to look for a creator. We are creation. Um, so the the Buddha is a representative. Now I'm off on. I don't even know much about Buddhism. I'm I'm off on that. But I'm learning a lot from Sinji Kanaida. And um, who is that? Now Sinji is the main um, monk. monk of the Nipponzan Miyahoji Temple down on Buckland Hill Road. Just here. By Hila there. Yeah, yeah by Hila, right, right beside Hila. And that temple has been on the island for 20 years or, or so. Um, and now, for the first time in Kitsap County history, there will be a Pacific Northwest Peace Pagoda in the Nipponzan Miyahoji Buddhist tradition, and it's being built in Polsbo at the, cent- the Ground Zero Center for Nonviolent Action. Um, and if you don't know about that, that's a wonderful organization and nonprofit that has been there, created primarily by peace activists back in the 
era when the white trains were bringing nuclear warheads to Bangor, mm-hmm. the Bangor nuclear sub base. Where there's more than anywhere else in the United States. Yeah, we have them right here. So, you know, some of the nuclear warheads are up in Indian Island and all that. Does that but make you feel safer or more exposed, personally? Oh, I'm, I do not feel safe with these on Earth. I think they need to slowly be... So period on Earth, not just in our backyard. Well, yeah, so I'm a pacifist. The Quaker part of me made me a pacifist as a small child. And, um, yeah, I actually believe there is a force more powerful. And, and it is uh, humor and art and, and uh, um, being able to grieve our human condition. And this is where I think Buddhists really have it right. They, um, some of the, the truths, there's four of them, but, but they basically are saying there is suffering. There will always be suffering. Does a Buddhist monk, are they able to speak, or do they have a vow of silence? No, you can talk. They talk. Because I just see a dude banging his drum walking by my house every once in a while. Well, that's a meditation. So he he, um, does walking meditation. So here's here's what the Pacific Northwest Peace Pagoda will do for us. Non-Buddhists and Buddhists. Well, for Buddhists, it will be a um, destination, um, a, a place to go and pray. Um, so there are other peace pagodas all around the world, but this is the first one on the West Coast. There's, there's two on the East Coast, um, but in this country, this will be our first. And what they, what they help us do is get in touch with our inner Buddha. And um, one of the things that I think is going to be fabulous about having this in our region is not only will it attract Buddhists, but it's going to help educate people about this Buddha consciousness which um, allows us, if we choose, to go to a pagoda and witness a Buddha. It will be a sculpture of a Buddha. And then, and then I have four sculptures there, which are all illustrations. They're, they're all chapters from the life of Buddha um, and help people to are those get... Chapter, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Are those chapters based in peace? Yes. Well, they're based in, in right Cohabiting? Yeah. Right living. Um, so, you know, just, and I'm going to, I think you can interchange Buddha consciousness with Christ consciousness and um, any kind of consciousness which allows us to get into a deeper, more connected, you know, form of, of living, a, a way that we can be um, in harmony with other humans, with the land that we're living on. Um, but what it, what it really is about is coming into balance. Um, and especially with, with Buddhists, you, you, you know, un, unless you are um, giving, like as Christ would say, unless you're giving, uh, feeding the hungry and giving to the poor and healing the sick, you know, you're, that's essential for being a good Christian. Well, it's very similar for, for Buddhists. You, one has to live simply. One has to be able to, um, um, meditate and not, not um, over expose oneself to materials um, and, and indeed the Nipponzan Miyahoji as you say are a peace loving uh, Senji who is my employer um, well he's my uh, commissioner I'm, my employer is you all I'm hoping to plug this there's a GoFundMe um, for the Pacific Northwest Peace Pagoda sculptural panels, and and hopefully people will 
go there and give a little bit um, to our project. But what the, what uh, the project is going to help helpfully do is show these chapters from Buddha's life, and those chapters all kind of accentuate how to achieve. Um, well, one's all about enlightenment, um, and that, and maybe people know about how the Buddha, uh, he sits underneath the Bodhi tree one day, and he's trying to meditate, and all of these different uh, demons and, and, you know, the proverbial monkey on your back mm. continue to come and inhabit his consciousness, and he kind of is going crazy, but he touches the earth. And the, so he's always grounded. Yeah, the earth is what brings him into that enlightenment. Um, and then nirvana, that's one of them. And nirvana is that ability to be everywhere and present at, at the same time. And, and he only achieves nirvana at his death. Um, and he achieves bodhisattva at that same time, which is the idea that if you, as you, um, as you achieve nirvana, all others on earth can achieve nirvana. It's like in the Jewish tradition, the Mashiach, you, you come to a new age of enlightenment. And I think Buddhists, like myself, maybe believe that we go in and out in, of enlightenment. We, we get a wisp of what enlightenment is. But instead of moving there and living there permanently, um, we can come back and help others to achieve enlightenment. And, and um, if we can, then then enlightenment, nirvana, truly will come to earth when all of us can reasonably be in enlightened in an enlightened state for most of our lives, <laughs> or as 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 easily as we choose to be in nirvana. So, to me, it seems like you identify as Jewish the most, but you also said Buddhism. Yeah. So, can you be? A Jewish Buddhist? Yeah, I'm... I, or are you just receptive to all religion and thought, um, no matter where it's based in? You take a little piece of each yeah. and, and just become yourself. Well, I, I, it's, so good question. I think, you know, the difference is um, we're either talking about religions or we're talking about spiritual calling. And I think I started by saying I'm a mystic. Yeah, so a spiritual true. calling for me is mysticism, but then I have a bunch of spiritual practices, and that begins to get into cultures. Um, and, but I like doing some of the, um, the, you know, I guess Buddhists are very well known for their meditative practices, and, mm -hmm. and you'll breathing. see, yeah, breathing is one of them. Yoga, um, it all it, yoga might even be Hindu to originally. Yes, Hindu. So so anyway, um, but all of those practices help you to achieve a, a, a deeper spirit or to mm -hmm. get back in touch with that universal spirit. So I actually think that I spiritually am a mystic and I try these different um, kinds of paths and practices. And that makes me um, culturally Jewish. I, I really, um, I, I look at each holiday and each day of the year as as part of that, um, you know, there's a lunar calendar associated with the, mm -hmm. with the Jewish um, holidays and, and what I can be um, thinking about 
for all of that. So I'm relatively tuned into that. Um, but you can combine your Quaker background yeah, my, with your present day learning of Buddhism. Yeah, my Quaker testimonies are uh, that Quakers allow, they're mystical enough to say there's nothing codified. It's really up to you how you do it. And that, that's when I, that really resonates for me that I, that I am, because I'm with Quakers, I'm, when I'm with Quakers, I'm able to just allow everyone to sort of be and talk about how they do it, you know, how they get there. And um, so the testimonies for Quakers are peace. So that makes me feel closer to the Nipponzan Miyahoji Buddhists than many Jews I know. Um, but simplicity, that makes me feel really close to the Buddhists. Uh, and you were talking about Amish, where you were coming from. Mm -hmm. well, that's kind of the tradition behind Quakerism, too. So simplicity just um, kind of not going into a materialistic world and allowing that to take over your life. Power of less. Yeah, yeah. So simplicity. Uh, so th that's kind of how I was raised. It was, it was through trying to achieve peace, simplicity, uh, equanimity, and you know, equity for all people. So that seeing that, that everybody, um, no matter where they come from, has the same potential for tuning into the same spirit what was the ethical diversity when you were you know college age around here on the island was there more people of color more into pino um, yeah more japanese people was it much more colorful well yeah my call so my college career what you know i actually attended evergreen like one year in olympia but then i lived on bainbridge while i was attending Evergreen for much mm -hmm. of it, and I was in their Native Studies department because after coming back from Indonesia and knowing all the mass tradition there and stuff, I realized and I realized that the, one of the most amazing mask and puppet traditions on Earth is right here in the Northwest, um, and it's shared. It's a very diverse um, kind of tradition because every tribe, every indigenous community in Washington, British Columbia, Alaska, they all have sort of another way of approaching their ceremony and telling their stories. And their stories of, of you know, great spiritual depth as well as um, power and, and uh, uh, you know, connection to the earth. Um, so I began carving masks, and mostly masks to begin with, because mm -hmm. masks was what I was all about. Um, a, in Polsbo with a man named Dwayne Pasco, and um, I became pretty well uh, versed with wood, um, although I had started carving wood in Indonesia and Bali. Um, but, I be, but wood in general, so these big sculptures that you see around Bainbridge Island, I began doing, you know, poles. I call them story poles and things um, because they tell stories. Tell me the story of Rainbringer and the other one at the Rotary. Okay, yeah. The, so the most local, um, right here on being the, uh, the first one percent for art sculpture on Bainbridge Island was that Rainbringer, and um, and so that's why do we need more rain? <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. No, tell well, me the story about Rainbringer. <laughs> actually, that was they um, they said 
uh, it was because they're rebuilding the water tower up by the high school, up, you know, the water tower that's up on the hill. Uh, oh, yeah, behind the soccer fields? Behind the soccer fields. They were building it and stuff. This would have been in the 90s, 80s. Anyway, Isn't there, like, tree cover over the top of it? Like, yeah. Isn't the, it in, like, a forest canopy? It probably of? needs some work now because this is back in ninety. Uh, they put out a call to everyone saying, we're going to do a 1% for art. And so they had a small budget for art. And they said, propose what you want to make and where you want to put it. And I was working with a man named Henry Seaweed, who's a member of the Thunder, the Colus um, clan. Right. Well, Colus is a, uh, he's of the Kwakwakwak nation, which um, they have lots of clans. And and the ability to dance certain dances and sing certain songs. Why do they prefer the the word clan to describe themselves? Because you can be culturally from the Kwakwakiwak people, but you can also be Raven instead of Thunderbird. So there's different different clans within. And now you can also be Thunderbird and be Nuchanur, which would be another tribe, but you have this commonality with people who don't even speak your same language. They're and the Rainbringer is uh, Thunderbird, correct? And, and the Rainbringer is the younger brother, brother of Thunderbird, Kolus. He's a messenger, and he represents the memory, the, the genetic memory that we all carry within us of, of where we came from way back. So actually, everybody has that, but Thunderbird reminds us, or Kolus reminds us about that we have that genetic memory, which m- allows us to tune into the ba- our bear consciousness or our wolf consciousness and mm-hmm. stuff. So every time we are really good at collaborating with our team at achieving a task, we might be getting back into our wolf consciousness. And we all have it because, the, but we might not be of the wolf clan. It's the wolf clan's job to remind us of our wolf consciousness. This is where my teaching comes through. I'm also a teacher. So, um, you know, I'm not wolf, but I am from the Orca clan. And so we all think of wolves as uh, part of a, a, a strong tribe of, of collaborators. But orcas are just as much. They hunt together. They, you know, they, they play cons- together. They play together. They're highly intelligent. They communicate very well. And they can work together on, on tasks like mm-hmm. catching a, a big school of salmon just by cornering them in their in their ways that they do. So, yeah, it, 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 I'm really interested in getting into these different states of consciousness, which we get into through spiritual rituals and mm-hmm. ceremony and arts. Yeah, because you, you actually film ceremonial arts, correct? Well, yes, if, when there's permission. Like, recent, I just said I'm part of this Orca clan, and that's because my Henry Seaweed and other people... Vouch Kwak- Kwak- for you. Yeah, they told me it's about time you join in. So we, we put together a, a ceremony and had it up at the Little Boston um, House of Knowledge where people from who had Orca stories from Suquamish, um, from Kukwakwakwak, from the Port Gamble Sklalem, and, and even non-indigenous people um, came together to highlight and talk about the power of the orca. And, um, and I was given a gift, I was given a song and a, and a dance to, that I now can, um, I feel an, it's an obligation and, and a responsibility for me to talk about. This is why orcas are 
we, we can't afford to lose them. They're an, an incredible ancestor that we still are living with. And if we tune into it, we wouldn't be doing a lot of what we're doing in terms of polluting the water. Yeah. If you give a hoot, don't pollute, right? Yeah. There you go. And tell me the story about the carving down um, oh, yeah. the rotary. Well, I, I'll finish telling you about Rainbringer. When we put together rain, the, the stuff that everybody knows about Thunderbird is that when it blinks its eyes, lightning comes out. And when it flaps its wings, that's the sound of thunder. Um, so I was telling that story and, um, and kids at the school, that, which used to be Commodore Middle mm -hmm. School back in the 90s, um, and, and kids there said, oh, wow, we can help you. And we made a big... Um, parade puppet and and hung it on the first sculpt actually the sculpture that's there now is the second one in the 90s it looked totally different but that one got smashed by a van in on a icy night when it ran into it and um so i had to replace it but uh the the kids that day we told this that story and and at a, a given point of the story this big puppet flew off of the sculpture and you could finally it was revealed and the puppet flew off down madison and um and and then we did pretty much the same story again when we reinstalled the second sculpture which is now the one you see and what's that one called it's rainbringer rainbringer 2 oh. technically rainbringer 2 but it's i um the first one now, this is a thing. I work in many indigenous styles. I was trained in many indigenous styles. And, um, and the Kwakwakiwak, who I got permission from Henry Seaweed, mm -hmm. who, who's been my mentor. He's the one who wrote my orca song and everything for me. Um, he came on that day to do a blessing for that uh, in, in the 90s. Um, and then we had others do blessings. He wasn't able to come for this, this current Rainbringer, but that uh, um, boy, what was the question <laughs> you were doing? The name of the second sculpture down it, at Rotary? Yeah, it, the, the, all, both of these uh, have been just tr trying to get people to understand that um, the, there's a, a the tradition behind the the Rainbringer is that it will um, a achieve the ability to hunt beyond all expectation. Um, because it it challenges itself, and the Thunderbird used to be a part of the Eagle Clan, and then it became so large and capable that now it hunts whales. And um, the first one was more in a Kwakwakwak style that was popular in the 90s, and the second one um, looks even more Salish. It has uh, its has more Salish style design forms. So, what defines a Salish style? Well, and this is the thing. You, um, I began doing much more northern style. Kwakwakwak is at the 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 area that it that Close to Canada, Henry comes right? from. It's in Canada. It's at the north tip of Vancouver Island, and of course down here. We are more Coast Salish, um, or the language people speak are Coast Salish in, um, languages, and um, and the art is is uniquely different. Um, but 
also very refined and beautiful. So um, I have just evolved as an artist, and this one looks more Salishan. Um, and it's still the same character. I feel as if I have the permission from the Thunderbird people, Thunderbird clan, to use that symbol. Um, but I'm reinterpreting when I give these. Mm -hmm. And I, the only reason why I feel like, okay, I have permission to re, to to uh, reinterpret is because you got the blessing in the first place. Yeah, they have the blessing, and and they know that I'm going to take it to the next level um, and help people to really understand where they are. Uh, about the wood, when you make a totem pole, obviously you have to dry the wood out. Um, mm. Is it usually pine? And what keeps it from usually cracking? Cedar. Cedar. It, that sculpture is cedar. Almost all of my sculptures you'll see publicly are cedar. Um, it's nice to carve it when it's wet. Um, the, I'm going to start talking about that caregiver, which is down there at Rotary Park. Um, it's made of both yellow cedar and red cedar. Now, the yellow cedar, good thing about cedar is it lasts forever, even if it's not carved. And so the yellow cedar, which are the two sculptures that are the hem of her cloak, the caregiver's cloak, they're, they're carved from yellow cedar. And those are really old, um, that yellow cedar. That, um, they've been sitting and drying for years. But when I decided to carve it, I would wet it as much as I could because your knife slides through wet wood better. Mm -hmm. It doesn't splinter. Yeah, it doesn't splinter quite as much. I messed around a little bit. Yeah, so you know. Carving. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the other thing is uh, I carve alder. And alder, you have to carve. You almost have to carve it when it's green, when it's wet because it's going to be much better. Now, it, um, you, it will shrink. So you have to at some point decide, okay, I've carved most or roughed out most of it. I'm going to do a little more detail work maybe later. After but you have dries. to, yeah, yeah I, if people say, well, did, you know, when did you start that? If I'm still working on it, um, I'm going to want to take some time in the middle of it to let it dry so it doesn't, crack and, and, you know, and then do finish work and painting and stuff after it's dry. And what's your association with Kiana Lodge? Did you put some work in Yeah, there? I have a big sculpture there, big 27-foot. Uh, um, it's the story of the mink. And, you know, there's a lot of weddings. A bunch of my friends have gotten married. At, we go there every Easter for brunch. Okay, there you go. And, uh, but you, so there's a big pole there facing out toward the water. Um, and it's, mm -hmm. yeah. That's the myth of Mink. Um, and Mink is one of these characters who wanted to get married to pretty much every character he ever met throughout his life. Um, just because he, he, he was an artist. He fell in love with clouds and kelp, all these things that were beautiful in nature. But, um, but he also thought that he could carry his, his namesake is the son. His father was the son and uh, they, in the Kwakwakwak language they call him born to be the sun so to fulfill his name he thought he needed to carry the sun across the sky a big mask it's the top figure on that pole mm. and he, while he was carrying the the sun across the sky he got so bored he's he's actually a trickster he's nobody's from the mink clan he's just a crazy guy who was carrying him the sun across the sky and he just got so bored, he ran far away from the path of the sun and ran closer to the earth and path. So everybody was pissed, and um, he ended up burning. You can see on that pole, 
singed fur on the grizzly and the butter clam has black around the edges and the owl has spots, black spots. All of that was because mink came too close to the earth and uh, the sun had to throw him out of the sky. That's what the top figure is, the sun throwing him out of the sky. And, uh, and he apprentices with his mother, the sea lion, who's the bottom figure, and uh, learns the ways of the water, which is basically what you need to learn in order to be a good husband or wife. You need to get in touch with your emotional realms. Bruce Lee, be like water. Ah, yes. Oh, good. I like Uh, that. So as we head out of here, um, of Studio 15, (laughs) tell me um, what you got going currently, and uh, you have quite a few websites. Yeah. Uh, Tell the people where they can find out more information about you. I will post information in the story links of the show. Okay. Um, so go yeah. Ahead. Well, okay. I'm, I'll, I'll start because um, Bainbridge Islanders are going to know my sculptures. The Rainbringer, the Caregiver at, at, uh, at Owen's Playground in, um, in the park at Rotary. And, um, and then Kiana Lodge. Um, all of that work can be seen at craigjacobbrown.com so that's C-R-A-I-G J-A-C-O-B-R-O-W-N dot com Um, and that's just sort of a review of my work much of that is not for sale Um, but some is and uh, but you can get an idea and you can contact me there but then there's also a, uh, um, a non-profit organization called Hamumu Arts Collective. And that's what I started with Henry Seaweed and George Taylor, his cousin, and a variety of other indigenous artists and educators. And that's our vehicle where we educate. So we have a, a study guide there. And um, a lot of We've, I, I began working with Joe Ives of the Port Gamble Sklalem tribe, producing films, videos, short form videos, which were stories his grandmother used to tell him. But since he was a very well known mask maker, he started making masks uh, of the characters that his grandmother told him. And we just said, I, I asked him, do your grandchildren know these stories that you keep telling me. He goes, no, they just want to watch DVDs. I said, well, let's make a DVD using your masks and your grandmother's stories and we'll, you know, put it out so your kid, your grandkids will want to see. And, and we did. We made a couple there and there's more coming. There's, now I'm beginning to um, make them in Bali and other cultures I have interest in taking ancient wisdom and bringing it to life with masks and puppets, music, dance. Um, so that's our mission with the Hamumu Arts Collective, and that's hamumu, H-A-M-U-M-U, dot org. Um, and then you began by asking me about my mask business, and that's a business which is still going strong. It um, has, I, I sell masks, usually European-style Commedia dell'arte, and Swiss Carnival, um, but I also sell um, Japanese Kyogen-style masks and Greek, Greek comedy-style masks, and they're all made out of neoprene and latex. I make multiples, and um, school, schools use them mostly to, uh, to uh, train actors, 
um, because as I say, this Lecoq method is a great way of, of expressing all of your theatrical, um, the plethora of, of emotions and intentions and doing it all with your body. You don't even need to open your mouth and you can tell lots of stories. That's, that's how I was trained. And it, it might seem, it sound goofy on one level and you can certainly get, clowning definitely has its basis in physical theater, but so does most all ceremonial mask traditions. So I find my, uh, I find a, a kindred spirit in other cultures just because I know about this carnival style of, uh, you know, the carnivals in, in, in Europe where my ancestors come from are amazing uh, parades full of people who all kind of move the same because they all wear the same mask. And so it's multiples and so it's chorus work and chorus work is, is a whole realm of theater which um, allows one kind of intention to become uh, all-encompassing and, and, you know, emerging and emersional for everyone who, who's not only involved but walk, watching, you know. So and anyway, I make those style mess and, and send them to different parts of the, of the world, but mostly here in the U.S., very cool. I don't know how you sleep because it sounds like you got a lot of irons and a lot of fires mm-hmm. and uh, a thirst for knowledge that carries you all over. Yeah, maybe that's it. It's that thirst which makes me, you know, I get sleep, but driven. You know, yeah. yeah, keeps me keeps me going. Waking up every day and thinking, what's next? <laughs> all right, Craig Jacob Brown, yeah. man with three first. No, that's no, not three first names. It's one word: Jacob Brown. J A C O B R W N. B-R-O-W. So there's two B's in there, right? The end of Jacob? No B. I mean, no uh, one B. No one. no hyphen. So it's one word. Brown. Jacob Brown. Jacob has a B on the end, and Brown has a B at the beginning. So there's not two B's. No, we, should, uh, we, we decided to put one B. That was a, a, a name that we, my first wife and I put together. We, she was a Jacobson. I was a Brown. We became Jacob Brown and... So is all my family. Now, Now you know, our kids and my granddaughter, we all share Jacob Brown. Gotcha. Legacy. All right. Mr. Jacob Brown. Yes. Thank you for coming in today. Thanks I for having me, Tim. My pleasure. I appreciate the conversation. You're a very interesting, interesting and fascinating man. Thanks for your time. You bet. No problem. Thank you. you. You've been listening to The Bystander. Be kind. <laughs>